0: is charles boyd from the minority of one podcast i am joined by my friend josh cohen now uh josh cohen and i actually uh we overlapped some in terms of when we went to oglethorpe university he he was a couple grades ahead of me so um we weren't that he was not there the entire time i was there but we did have some overlap and uh i believe we were both um at one point involved in outlet um LGBT student group at at Oglethorpe, uh, and um, I wanted to uh, sort of let Josh give an idea of kind of what his uh, kind of background is, you know, let let him tell you guys a little bit bit about himself, and then we'll kind of get into what the topic of this podcast is going to be.
1: Yeah, so like Charles said, my name is Josh Cohen. Uh, I attended Oglethorpe University uh, currently, I am working on a master's in teaching social studies from Georgia State University, and I'm going to be talking about biblical infallibility from a Reconstructionist Jewish point of view.
0: So yes, that, and I think that this is this promises to be a very interesting discussion. Um, I'm going to be going at it from kind of a uh, theologically liberal Christian Protestant perspective. Um, so uh, we're certainly neither one of us are going at this from what would be considered a fundamentalist or evangelical perspective um, but Josh uh, just um, I think I have a, a pretty good understanding of, of what it is but just um, for anyone in the audience who may not be aware can you sort of describe
1: what Reconstructionist Judaism is sure so reformed Judaism was a movement to basically adapt Judaism to the culture and modern day world that we live in. Uh, It throws out a lot of traditions and places a great deal of emphasis on maintaining peace with your neighbors uh, over necessarily adherence to uh, strict tradition. Reconstructionist Judaism says, no, an important part of Judaism is maintaining those traditions so while we do pick and choose a little bit of what we follow and what we don't in terms of uh, ritual, it's still very based on maintaining ritual and a way of life uh, in a way that is still uh, cohesive with the modern world.
0: That, that makes sense. Um, I, uh, that that kind of squares with what my understanding of Reconstructionist Judaism is. So um, before we get into the specific topic, because um, we are, or, or I shouldn't say the specific topic, before we get into kind of the specific aspects of the Bible that we're going to be discussing, um, I wanted to kind of give Josh uh, a chance to say, what his view on biblical infallibility is, and then I'm going to give mine, um, and, and then we're going to talk about kind of uh, some of the Bible passages in which God either kills uh, a large number of people. Some would some would uh, describe it as mass murder, but I'm just uh, there. That would be obviously contested. So um, we're going to be talking about those passages and passages in which God instru- uh, instructs. People to kill large numbers of other people, including what would be constitute or what would be considered civilians. So, um, Josh, if you could uh, give the audience your take on biblical infallibility, um, what your basic opinion on that is, then uh, I'll give mine and we can jump in.
1: Sure. So, I am by trade uh, an educator. I'm not a, a theologian by any means, and I. I feel, uh, in dealing with Judaism, you've got to preface it with the old adage, uh, two Jews, three opinions. So (laughs) I am, I am speaking from my own perspective. You know, I don't have a congregation of my own. I'm not a rabbi by any means. Um, this is just sort of, uh, from my family's traditions and from my own personal study, what I've come to think about this. And so... Judaism differs I think from Christianity and biblical infallibility in two key areas and the first one is loopholes and whereas I think a lot of Christianity focuses on um well if there's a loophole you must be reading the Bible wrong. Judaism goes with well if there's a loophole you have to figure out why that loophole was left in the Bible. So for instance um It says, you know, thou shalt not make a fire on the Sabbath. You're forbidden from making a fire. Now, that's been interpreted to include turning on electronics, creating a spark. So what if somebody is in an electronic wheelchair? That creates a problem. So engineers in Israel have interpreted this ban on fire as being specific to fire and electricity. And so they created a wheelchair that moves based on releasing air pressure. So, uh, the other idea, I guess, behind biblical infallibility is, um, kind of in line with Berkeley's idea of the universal perceiver, that things may seem evil from our opinion or our vantage point, but we can't see the whole vantage point in the way that God does. So that we can't fully understand the repercussions of, uh, The things that god might do that we might not understand or might even see as you know evil if they were committed by a human being
0: so my perspective on it um and this is a perspective that i came into uh, probably about 12 years ago um, and i should probably clarify that uh, i am not a uh, trained theologian either Um, my discipline is history, um, but I have been interested in theological issues since I was a kid, um, basically as sort of a, sort of a hobby, um, but it's an intellectual intellectual hobby that I've, um, tried to really stimulate through a lot of reading and a lot of, uh, philosophical thinking. Um, actually, uh, Just as a little bit of a side note, I think that one of the reasons I became interested in theological issues is that um, some well-intentioned members of my extended family introduced me to the concept of eternal damnation, which quite literally scared the hell out of uh, Kid Me. Um, And so I, uh, and I never intellectually believed in it, still don't, but I Sort of uh, I read up a lot on that topic, trying to sort of deal with the the panic that I'd gotten from being exposed to it. So my take on biblical infallibility is that I, I think that there are large swaths of the Bible that are divinely inspired, but I don't think that it can be taken as infallible. Um, there are clearly parts that are in error morally. Um, Some would argue scientifically or historically, um, but certainly there are parts that I would argue simply cannot be defended from a moral standpoint. Um, And I would also say that when there is a a Bible passage in which there is a conflict between accepting that passage as infallible and accepting... What we, un- what we know to be true about ethics, for example, slavery is wrong, murder is wrong, etc., then that Bible passage does have to give way. And I would also say that um, while I don't believe in divine command theory, uh, I've, I've never um, been a fan of that um, from sort of an intellectual standpoint, I would also say that even if we were to accept the idea that God commanding something automatically makes it right. Even if we accepted that, which I don't, we're still left with the problem that there is nothing in the Bible, Old or New Testament, that, and we're going to be focusing on the Old Testament today, but there's nothing in the Bible that can be directly attributed to God because everything is other people quoting him. And you can find any number of people from any number of faith traditions who claim that God has spoken to them, told them to do something, et cetera, you know. And so, um, for example, you know, Muhammad, uh, Muhammad claimed that he received commands from God, um, I think through Gabriel, I don't know, I I don't know enough about Islam to say if Muhammad is believed to have ever spoken directly to God, but, um, you know, you have, uh, Mormon leaders who claim that they've spoken directly to God, um, and uh you have also i mean just you know the example i always give is i could say that god told everyone to recognize or god told me that everyone should recognize me as the ruler of the world but that wouldn't actually mean that 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 wouldn't make the quote directly from god and it wouldn't mean that it was actually something that god had said so sorry that got a little bit long-winded but um what we're going to be diving at, what we want to uh, dive into today, um, now that we've sort of gotten the uh, introductions out of the way, is that we have a uh, variety of Bible passages in which God either kills large numbers of people himself or, or uh, instructs other people to do it. And in many of these passages, many of the people who were killed would be uh, what you what what we would understand to be innocent people, or in the case of the flood, innocent animals as well. Um, so, actually, let's uh, let's start off with um, I'm, I want to kind of ask Josh how he uh, what his take on that is from a theological standpoint, that I'm going to kind of give mine, and then we'll try to get into some of the specific Bible passages, uh, some of the ones that I was thinking of would probably be, uh, the flood in Genesis, um, the plagues in the Exodus and, uh, the, uh, slaughter of the Canaanites, which I, is that Deuteronomy or? That is a good question. Uh,
1: (laughs) I'm not entirely sure. That's okay. Well, we know it's, 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 we know it's in there.
0: So, um, what, but what's, uh, uh, how do you, uh, How do you interpret those passages?
1: Um, Again, it's the idea that we're only seeing a very limited scope of those actions. Um, You know, we don't know what the repercussions would have been had they not have passed, right? That's something that only God can know. So, from our vantage point, it looks bad, it looks very grim. Um, I might compare it to if you had a time machine and you brought somebody from, you know, ancient Rome to witness modern surgery, they would be like, oh, dear God, what are you doing? Why is that person being, you know, stabbed with a needle and then cut open? It would appear to them from their limited knowledge and their vantage point that you were destroying this person when, in fact, you as the surgeon were healing them. And I think... That I would compare that to, we just don't understand the surgical process that is going on uh, between God and the world in those passages.
0: So um, I guess that one of my uh, one of my crit- uh, critiques of that, because I certainly understand where you're coming from, and I, I did en- I did like that analogy, um, but I-, I guess so. One of my kind of uh, one of my critiques with that would be okay. If we take, for example, um, the Exodus, um, where we have uh, in the you know the earlier plagues, I don't think any people in the first nine actually died. So we can we can uh, deal with the tenth one. So in the tenth plague, you have. Uh, firstborn male son, I believe, I don't think it was, I don't think female children uh, were were killed, but you have the uh, firstborn male child of every family, or did, were female children killed in the 10th plague? I'm trying to remember. Uh, No, it was just the firstborn son. Okay, I thought that was right, but I didn't want, I didn't want to embarrass myself too much, but, um, so, the, uh, in that passage you have a variety of people, which would, you know, include children. Um, It would include possibly slaves of other slaves in Egypt who were not Jewish. Um, It would include people who had no control over uh, what kind of policies the Pharaoh was promoting. They all died. Now, the problem I think that you run into in that passage is that you're not dealing with a situation in which... Somebody has a finite a, a finite number of options for bringing about the greater good because in this specific situation, God is omnipotent. so God would presumably have, according to the traditional interpretation, any number of methods for getting the Hebrews out of Egypt without killing innocent people um, be, you know God could have very specifically targeted the plague to the pharaoh to the other people who were supporting him. God could have teleported the Hebrews out of Egypt. God could have controlled the, the Pharaoh's mind, you know, to uh, make him stop enslaving them. Then you also have the fact that, according to, uh, according to the Bible, it describes God actually hardening Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the Israelites go free. So it seems like, according to the traditional interpretation, God is actually pushing the pharaoh, though obviously the pharaoh didn't need God's encouragement to enslave people to begin with, it seems like God is actually pushing toward that event in which he, quote unquote, has to have Moses perform the tenth plague. Um, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you say that the um, that the issue of God's omniscience kind of makes the makes the defense that, that you mentioned kind of uh, difficult to sustain? I'm not. I'm not trying to be rude, but
1: I'm. I'm just. I'm just asking. Um, yeah, the issue of omniscience is uh, is certainly interesting to to play around with. Again, not not being omnipotent or omniscient. Ourselves. Oh, actually, I probably day. shouldn't have. said, I, pro- I think I
0: accidentally meant to say. I think I've been saying omniscient the whole time. I meant to say omnipotent. So, uh, okay. Just, uh, I meant to say omnipotent. Sorry about that. Um, but can you just, uh, can you just assume with the question that I asked, just replace every reference to omniscience with omnipotent?
1: Yes. So, um, yeah, uh, not being omnipotent ourselves, um, it's difficult to understand the logic. You know why God didn't just teleport the Jews uh, out of Egypt and into, you know, a new uh, safe land. Um, prior to this, you've got uh, the Pharaoh you know, also ordering the deaths of all male Jews who were born, right? That's how Moses ends up being found in the reeds by the Pharaoh's daughter. So I think uh, though there is sort of a level of cruelty there is a level of uh, sort of yeah this is kind of ironic to say but karmic justice <laughs> um, you know the the balancing of the scales that um, you know the Egyptians other than uh, two midwives who are specifically mentioned um, are complacent in the deaths of all of these Jewish children so um the idea that it, it's wholly uh, innocent people being harmed there is, I don't think, entirely fair. I think, um, in that instance, it's the bringing of balance for the edict that had killed all the male heirs, not just the firstborn of the Jews.
0: I, I can definitely get where you're coming from there, and i um, if I implied that all of the people, according to the account, who were killed If I implied that all of them were innocent, you know, the the people that were killed in the 10th plague, I I certainly didn't intend to imply that. I mean, I think it's clear that many of them would have either actively or passively supported the enslavement and the slaughter of the Israelites. But I think that the the issue that you run into is if even one innocent person was killed in the 10th plague, then you have to sort of ask yourself why an omnipotent, I got it right that time. Deity wouldn't have just targeted only the guilty people, because of course that was well within the scope of his abilities. Um, and as far as as far as passively accepting, I think we have to be careful there, because um, the the issue you run into is that, especially in a dictatorial society like it seems like ancient Egypt was, but in general the average person has very little control over what kind of policies the government is performing. And in many cases, they have no means of resisting that without being slaughtered, tortured, et cetera, imprisoned prison themselves. Um, and, you know, I think back to, you know, I kind of want to use, the, the, because I'm a historian by trade and you are studying to become a social studies teacher, we'll probably both be doing a lot of kind of uh, historical analysis here. But you think about a guy like John Brown in the United States, and John Brown probably read um, the the book of Exodus many times. Now, Brown was actually far more restrained and far more specific about who he killed than um, God is described as being in the account of the Exodus. But you talk to many people today, and they would still argue that Brown was killing people who really didn't have a lot of control over what the policies of um, of the United States government and of the southern states government southern state governments was at that time. You also have a guy you also have a guy like Nat Turner who killed innocent people but you know was still doing it on a much smaller scale than what we see with the tenth plague. Um, but it seems like with the argument that everybody in Egypt was complicit in that, then it seems like that would argue that 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 would sort of naturally lead to the conclusion that John Brown and Nat Turner actually didn't go far enough. Now, I personally actually am an advocate. I think the government should actually pardon everyone who took part in slave revolts because, I mean, it was clearly something they were pushed into by the government. But it does seem like um if we followed that sort of line of reasoning um that everyone in Egypt you know all the Egyptians were complicit then it would effectively justify mass slaughter of the population in any country where there's human rights atrocities going on um and i uh i know i i get kind of long winded there so i'm going to give you um as much time as you want to answer that, I'm, I'm not going to interrupt you or talk over you while you're talking. So you can, uh, you can dissect that all you want.
1: Well, it's, uh, it's certainly a, a dilemma. So with, uh, the issues of, of uh, Nat Turner and John Brown, um, again, I, I think they were justified in their actions. Personally. Um, I don't want to get too much into it cause we'll get away from the, theology uh that we're trying to focus on and end up dealing with uh history we can save that for a, another podcast That's but um, <laughs> but um ultimately i think one uh we have to be careful as human beings uh that we don't fall into the trap of saying well god did it so i can do it um You know, again, we don't have that. That position is the universal perceiver, so that's a a dangerous trap to fall into. Um, With, I guess, God sort of, you know, moving with this broad brush, you know, we don't have a list of everyone and intimate knowledge of everyone who was killed in the exodus of Egypt. Um, You know, here I I do have to fall back on the, uh, the sort of God command idea that, you know, uh, God decided that these people had to die, and um, certainly in Judaism, it's not something we celebrate. Um, you know, during Passover, the you know celebration of the Exodus out of Egypt, there is a portion of the Seder where you do mourn the Egyptians who died during the plagues, um, and that, you know, they had to suffer. Ultimately, you know, that's, uh, you know, if you believe in God, You have to believe that uh, God has domain over life and death, and without being able to see into the lives of every single person who dies or died, um, it's hard for us to say that it wasn't justified. You know, um, that we don't really know from the Bible whether, you know, there were certain Egyptians who could have been considered righteous Gentiles who were saved. Um, You know, especially with differing translations. You know, some might see it as everyone who wasn't Jewish being slaughtered. I've read other translations that are, you know, just the firstborn of the Egyptians specifically, so it wouldn't necessarily be uh, the slaves who were uh, non-Jewish who were also slaughtered in that uh, plague.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I definitely get where you're coming from there, and again, you're absolutely right that we don't want to get on a historical deer trail. I, I'm i actually, I mostly condone what Brown and Turner did, the, the only reason I brought that up was kind of make the point that they actually didn't go as far as um, God is described as doing in the Tenth Plague, and probably the majority of Americans still don't like what they did, so I was more... I wasn't trying to condemn their actions, but I was more just sort of using that as, as an analogy. But I think, I think the issue that you run into um, with... Uh, that I think there are a couple of issues that you kind of run into um, with the uh, d- defense that you offered, which was certainly... It, it was certainly a, a good defense. Um, but I think the issues... That, there are a couple of issues that you run into. I think, number one, um, if you're talking about the firstborn male children... That's presumably going to include babies, in in some instances, um, or children who are, um, if not infants, far too young to make any kind of uh, rational decisions, one way or the other. And then I think the other issue you run into, or I think there are a couple others. So I think the other issue, one of the other issues you're going to run into, is that in um, there are certain cases in which Somebody has killed someone and said that God told him to do it. And so if you, if you take the position, and I know that you would never defend that. I know most Jews and Christians would never defend that. But I think the issue you can run into is that if we start saying that God can basically kill people as punishment any time, or order other people to do it, as happens in other parts of the Bible, and I realize I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent there, but if, once you start taking that position, you can kind of run into the issue of, okay, um, does that mean that the people who say God told them to kill somebody might be telling the truth? Should that be considered a valid defense in court? And I think the final problem that we run into, um, and I'm going to say why I don't, I'm going to give this problem and I'm going to say why I actually don't think it's as big of a problem as the other two points that I mentioned, is that... Anything in any religious text can pop can um, conceivably be defended on the grounds or um, on the grounds of well, we don't really know the full scope because we're not God, and so that I know this is not your intention, but that can function as effectively a shield against any kind of intellectual criticism of anything in any religious text, um, and. So I think that uh, I do think we have to be kind of careful about uh, about that kind of justification, but I, um, I I would kind of urge people and I guess this is kind of why I don't think it's as that that issue is as problematic as the other ones I mentioned is that um, Judaism in most countries um, has uh, much less of a history of trying to essentially Force other people to believe what they believe morally and theologically than Christianity does. So with Christ, So, whereas with Christianity, you have many Christians who like you have many Christians who basically say, I believe homosexuality is wrong on faith because the Bible says it. So now our public policy has to reflect that in every aspect. Um, it seems to me, in my experience, that typically Judaism is much more respectful of the idea that just because a Jewish person believes something on faith, it doesn't mean that everyone else has to or that public policy has to reflect that. So I guess what I'm kind of saying here is if you believe something on faith, but you don't try to force other people to believe that, I don't think it's usually a problem in general. Um, mean, I believe certain things on faith, not not usually moral things, but I believe certain cosmological things on faith. But I, I do think... um those are kind of my three issues with what I do think was a very able defense of, of those Bible passages.
1: All right, so there was a there was a lot there, and I want to take a little side note. You you did talk about how Judaism tends not to be as uh, proselytizing as Islam or Christianity, and uh, that's due to the fact that uh, a lot of people misinterpret the concept of God's chosen people as sort of an egotistical, you know, we're better than you, we were chosen. It's actually considered almost a burden, right? If you are Jewish, in order to get into heaven, there are 613 commandments in Judaism you have to follow. Uh, If you are a non-Jew in Judaism to get into heaven, there are seven laws that you need to follow. Uh, The seven Noahide laws handed down to Noah after the flood. That's all you need to do to be a righteous person. So in Judaism, you're not saving anyone by converting them to Judaism. You're actually making their life harder. So, you know, I I have no desire to deprive anybody else of a bacon cheeseburger. And in fact, uh, even in Tel Aviv, you can get a bacon cheeseburger. Right. We're not out to to push our beliefs generally on other people. Usually where proselytizing occurs is uh, more Orthodox Jews trying to get people like myself to be more observant and uh, more more Orthodox more ritualistic in our practicing of Judaism um, getting into yeah the idea that uh, uh, we are not God so we can't have that universal perspective um, as sort of it it is kind of a, a non-provable you can't really um, you know you can't prove that we've got a universal perspective and you can't... You know, I guess it... Okay, so uh, dealing with, I guess, the idea that God is the universal perceiver, um, yes, it does sort of um, avoid intellectual criticism, but also in certain instances, it is really the only defense of these types of actions. Um, you know, you talked about If the firstborn is killed, surely some of those firstborn are babies. And, you know, we can't know what those babies would have grown up to be, who they would have been, you know, whether, you know, that would have been an army that rose up to reconquer and re-enslave the Jewish people, right? That's one possible scenario, but we don't know. So I'm not trying to sort of avoid any intellectual criticism, but... Ultimately, I think the idea of God as the universal perceiver is the only defense of these actions that I can offer. Going into that, there's also this weird idea of, you know, how do you hold an omnipotent being accountable? The best I can do is offer a story of a a group of rabbis in a concentration camp. And, you know, they're going through one of the most horrific events in human history, uh, suffering for their religion, and they held a trial, and they found God to be guilty of letting the Jewish people go through this ordeal and not helping them. And then they went out and said their morning prayers. So there is a a certain powerlessness that comes with being a human being. And as much as we would like to uh, be able to sort of hold our creator accountable um, ultimately we can and you've gotta gotta take some things on on faith and have faith in that idea of the universal perceiver um, because on a pure intellectual basis you know I'm I'm still just a man I can't <laughs> argue from the perspective of God to justify that from the being that actually committed the acts
0: yeah i mean i the way i the way i resolve it is because i i also um have no interest in in you know trying to put god on trial so to speak i mean um my my way of dealing with it is um i just conclude that the bible got it wrong um or that the well i mean there's there's stuff in the old and new testament that i think the Bible got wrong where they essentially the writers uh, conflated certain human instincts, um, whether with revenge, prejudice, other things. They sort of conflated that with God's will. Um, so I, I, we actually I think are would would be in agreement on the nature of God. Um, I think where we where we seem to disagree is how accurate certain Bible passages are in reflecting god's nature um that i i had i had um i had sort of i had anticipated uh that some people might make the argument about kind of what the babies would have grown up to be like i think that it it does seem while i certainly understand that argument it does seem to be a bit of a reach to to think that all of them would have grown up to be like that, um, because you tend to have great variation, um, in beliefs with, with any population, and I think that you also have to consider, um, and this actually sort of segues into the, uh, slaughter of the Canaanites, is that if God is all-powerful, then God could have potentially had, you know, uh, transported the babies to Israel with the fleeing Israelites and had them raised there, in which case the the, the scenario of them later becoming a re-enslaving army seems, the the odds of that scenario taking place seem to be drastically reduced. And see, with the Canaanites, um, it seems like that issue becomes even more problematic for a couple reasons, because when the Canaanites are ordered to be slaughtered, um, it's very specifically described that everyone is going to be killed, you know, people who are non-combatants, women, children, infants, uh, pregnant women, um, and you uh, you end up in a situation in which, because I've heard the argument that if the babies had survived, I mean, this is actually something I've heard primarily from Christian apologists, but I've heard the argument that if the babies had survived, then they would have grown up, you know, and um, continued to... Uh, Corrupt the Israelites or try to fight with the Israelites, but it seems like again that could be avoided by um, even if the so, even if the Canaanite soldiers had to be killed, then the God could have instructed the Israelites to raise the Canaanite babies as their own and sort of adopt them into the the tribes of Israel. So I think I think that the we, we again kind of get into an issue of. It seems like God's omnipotence, um, I'm being very careful not to say omniscient again because that was kind of embarrassing, but it seems like God's omnipotence does make these issues actually harder to reconcile because it's harder to it's harder to preclude the possibility of other sort of more humane methods. And I'm going to stop there because I don't want to get on another, uh, I don't want to do another filibuster.
1: So um, ultimately... Uh, I think this does just boil down to uh, how you feel about God as the universal perceiver and your faith in the divine plan. Um, you know, we can't ever really fully know or understand. And uh, it kind of reminds me of the story of the three blind men and the elephant. Have you heard this? This story? Oh, yeah, I love that one. So for our listeners who haven't heard it, uh, three blind men walking through the forest uh, come across this fantastic beast, you know, they can't see it, but they start feeling and one says, oh man, it's, it's smooth and it's got a sharp point to it. And another one says, no, 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 it's, it's very big and round and it's got little hairs all over it. And another one says, no, 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 you're both wrong. It's long and it's muscular and there's, there's hot air coming out of the end of it. And all of a sudden they all regain their sight and realize they've been feeling different parts of the elephant. And so I think when we look at the Bible, we're getting different parts of God. And, you know, I I hate to go back to the point, but, you know, we can never have that universal perspective. We can only ever see those little parts and we'll never have the full picture of God's reasoning or God's nature.
0: I I can certainly get where you're coming from on that. And um, I also, uh, and this is not a response to what, what you said, this is just sort of, actually finding common ground with you um, and sort of reiterating something that we talked about uh, at, another, at another point before we recorded. Um, I actually, I would say from what I understand about the concept of God as the universal perceiver that I actually agree with that. Um, I do believe it, that God is completely benevolent and that there are certainly things that about God that we cannot understand with our finite capacity but the way that I the way that I reconcile that with the biblical passages that I've criticized is I just believe that the Bible got certain things about God's nature right and certain things about God's nature wrong, and I'm fully willing to admit that that is based on faith because ultimately um, that's the only way that I can reconcile. My faith with my intellectual beliefs, because if somebody were, if I actually concluded that, that I either had to believe all the Bible or none of it, then I'd have to believe none of it, and I don't want to do that. So yeah, I think we actually have some, some common ground on, on this, and I wanted to kind of, uh, I wanted to ask Josh, um, since he's here with us, he's uh, generously agreed to, uh, answer some questions, uh, about Judaism that, um, you know, my sort of base of knowledge with theology is, is more centered on Christianity. So, um, this is, uh, going to be very beneficial for me. I think it's, gonna be, I think it's going to be very beneficial for my fellow listener or for my listeners. Um,
1: so what is, I already know where you're going with this. You want to know how to make matzo ball soup. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I don't, I don't, never quite knew, I
0: never quite knew how to do that. Um, I actually, you know, um, it's, uh, it is, I mean, I, I've eaten matzo, matzo ball soup and I, I, I went to a, I went to a one Seder one time, really enjoyed it. Um, I, uh, they let me, one of the things I liked about it was they let me take home the yamaka. Um, but it was very, it was very bright and colorful, but, um. The question, the first question I kind of wanted to ask. Well, actually, you can you can give the. Do you want to give the audience a brief tutorial on how to do that, just in case anyone <laughs> wants to know how to do that?
1: Um, well, honestly, uh, there's two ways. You know, you can do it the traditional way. Um, you know, you well, not traditional way, but you're you're crushing up matzah, mixing it with egg and oil, balling that up, and boiling it. Uh, I find that my preferred way to do it is right after you've got that ball of uh, matzo meal, egg, and oil. You cover it in a little bit of chicken fat and put it in the oven so it gets kind of this crispy outer shell and a little doughier inside. I think that's the key to a good matzo ball.
0: <laughs> hey, that sounds delicious. I actually, before I ask you kind of a more serious question and, and thank you for uh, letting us know how to do that. Um, Cause I can, I can cook stuff. I just have to have a very specific recipe to follow. Um, you know, and I definitely don't try to change it up because I just, I know that's going to end a disaster. But um, I, before, before I ask you a question, I did kind of want to tell a funny Seder story related to, uh, related to food. Um, so um, most people who know me personally probably know that I'm obsessive compulsive. Um, people who um, are listening but don't know me in person, you know that about me now. Um, but one of my weird sort of obsessive compulsive things is that I really, 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 really like to eat my dessert last. Um, and when I was uh, when I was at the seder, um, I, you know we'd eaten dinner and then we were going to eat dessert. And then the person hosting the seder said, "So I need you guys to take um, a piece of that bread." Um, and we're going to uh, we're going to eat it at the very end. We're going to eat that little piece of bread at the very end of the night. So I actually had this sort of internal conflict of, ooh, you know, this is kind of messing with my OCD a little bit because I don't want to eat anything after my dessert, but I also don't want to ruin the seder. So I guess I'll just I guess I'll just eat this chunk of bread th- this time. But um, and I I love telling that story to Jewish people because usually what'll happen is they'll start grinning or chuckling before I get to the punchline because they can see where it's going, but. Um, so I've got to ask. Um, so what? Moving on to sort of a more sort of, uh, I guess you could say more sort of deep or, or uh, you could almost say kind of morbid theological issue. What is the sort of reconstructionist and or reform Jewish take on the afterlife, and how much controversy is that? Is there over that within Judaism?
1: There is actually a lot of debate about the afterlife in Judaism, um, because it's not a central issue. Um, Judaism focuses a lot more on how to live in the here and now and how to be uh, a good person on this earth than necessarily how to earn an eternal reward. Um, so there's there's certain sects of Judaism that believe in uh, five or three different souls, um, I forget where, where all the five go, but the, the three different souls, you know, one stays here on Earth, uh, one goes up to heaven with God, and one stays in the hearts of the people uh, who you loved. Um, but generally, uh, what the 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 Old Testament says about heaven is either you get into heaven or you don't. There's no hell. Um, the concept of Satan in Judaism is very interesting to me. Um, and I've been reading about it lately. Uh, so in Hebrew, Satan is a verb. It it sort of means to lead astray, to beguile, and uh, the term Hasatan, the Satan, um, or you know, the beguiler, only appears uh, in two instances. Um, the most notable of which uh, is Job. Right where he urges God to test Job's faith by depriving him of all these wonderful things. So Satan in Judaism does not have a specific place in the afterlife as defined in the Torah, but a lot of rabbis um, sort of uh, in the commentary in the in the Mishnah and the Talmud uh, place uh, Hasatan the the angel the beguiler as a kind of uh, Prosecuting attorney, <laughs> right? Of course, the the Jewish perspective: Satan is a lawyer. Um, so, uh, when you go to heaven, you know uh, there's there's a trial. You know, why do you deserve to get into heaven? And Satan is that that prosecution saying you don't deserve it. Um, you know, look at all the terrible things you did in your life, and then presumably you have an angel in yourself to say, yes, but look at all the wonderful things I did, and you know, look look at how I atoned for the bad things I did in my life. So Judaism, you either get into heaven or you don't. And uh, like I said earlier in the podcast, another unique feature of Judaism in the afterlife is that it's easier to get into heaven as a non-Jew than as a Jew.
0: That's actually a very interesting point. Um, And that's such an inverse of not so much liberal Christianity, but um, cert- but that's a big inverse of evangelical, Protestant, and Catholic Christianity and a big inverse of uh, Islam because in, in, in the two other, obviously in the two other Abrahamic faiths, it's considered in sort of the traditional interpretations, and again, you know, the, there's a lot of debate about this, but in the, tr- in the traditional interpretations of Christianity and Islam, it's much harder or impossible to get into heaven if you're not of that religion, so I think that's a very interesting point. So I, I want to make sure I understand. Um, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. Um, is the, so the take so the uh, the traditional Jewish teaching would be that somebody who doesn't go to heaven, they just cease to exist. Is is that correct?
1: Um There's not really a lot of explicit text on that, um, so it's all commentary and debate so again that's where you get into sort of the the different number of souls um whether or not sort of it's just yeah they cease to exist um that was always what I took away from it um that was sort of uh you know you had your your moment as a child learning about eternal damnation and I had a moment uh I was always envious of eternal damnation because I thought that was so much less scary than just ceasing to exist. Um, now that I'm older, I, I don't think so quite as much. <laughs> I, I think probably ceasing to exist would be more pleasant than eternal damnation. But uh, as a child, that idea of ceasing to exist really terrified me. So that, that was always what I took away from it. The one thing, and uh, I'm sure some of our listeners have thought about this, uh, is that you know? Well, if it's easier to uh, you know get into, hell, if it's easier. <laughs> so you know the, the question then is why why stay Jewish at all, right? Why not convert? Well, uh, as as uh, the Talmud is interpreted, uh, it doesn't work like that. You know, once you once you've made the commitment, whether you're born into it or a convert or whatever, once you've made that decision. Or had that decision made for you to be Jewish, uh, you're stuck. You can't just convert and say, "Well, I'm just going to follow these seven laws, and uh, that's all I got to do." Once, once you're in, you've you've made that commitment. Um, now, obviously, there's you know no physical world punishment for leaving Judaism, but uh, the teaching would be that you you don't get into heaven if you just convert and only follow those seven.
0: Yeah, because I could see how, you know, otherwise it, it does seem like um, Judaism would probably hemorrhage a lot of, a lot of
1: followers. Um, and we do, uh, because it, it is difficult to uh, reconcile and observe a Jewish life with the modern world. Um, you know, I, I got to drive across town here in Atlanta anytime I, I need Jewish holiday stuff. And, you know, I can only imagine if I lived over in, uh, you know, Macon or, uh, you know, Augusta, how, how much more difficult it would be to maintain a Jewish life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is, a, that is a very good point. I mean, Atlanta, um, I think I actually, because the high school that I went to had um, a, a pretty substantial number of Jewish students, and I think I actually... Got sort of a warped perception of how big the Jewish population was in Atlanta. Like I was actually very surprised when I found out it's about five percent, which is actually weirdly that's way above the national average. Oh yeah. Um, But uh, you know, um, I uh, I also kind of wanted to um, ask. So when I was another sort of you know, um, so when I was a kid. And it's actually funny when you talk about the sort of fear of eternal damnation, because um, when I told my mom, who never believed in sort of that fire and brimstone uh, version of theology, and who was never, to my knowledge, ever exposed to it as a child, when I told her that that freaked me out as a kid, and that I still occasionally got a little bit freaked out by it, she was very surprised, because she's like, I've never worried about that a day in my life. Like, I just, you know, like... She just, she doesn't believe in it intellectually either, just like I don't, but I think because she was never exposed to it as a kid, it it doesn't freak her out, just like if somebody says that everyone who's not Muslim is going to hell, it it doesn't, you know, it doesn't give me any kind of uh, sinking feeling or any kind of, you know, nagging doubt about what if that's true, because I think it's a lot harder for someone to get scared of a religious concept if they weren't raised with it. Um, or if they weren't, I mean, I was not raised with that concept, but it was something that I was exposed to from extended family, but I think if you, I think in order for something like that to really scare you, it usually has to be put into your head when when you're young, but um, so I did want to, speaking of like other things that, uh, other thoughts that the kid version of me had, when I was a kid, from, when, when I sort of read some of the Old Testament, I assumed that well, the Old Testament seems very conservative. So I guess most Jewish people are probably politically conservative. Um, as I got a little bit older, I realized that ain't true. So um, and I you know and I actually uh, one of the things that I've um, written some about is uh, the heavy uh, heavy presence of Jewish people in the civil rights movement. And actually, you know, if you if you look at polling data now, and I'm probably I don't want to be presumptuous and act like I'm not trying, like, I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't already know. This is this is mainly for our listeners. But I was actually looking at polling data, and it was something like, I don't have the exact number, but it was something like, they asked Jewish Americans, do you think that there's a lot of discrimination against Jewish people? And something like 40% or 45% said yes. And they said, do you think there's a lot of discrimination against African Americans? And something like close to two-thirds said yes. Um, so yeah, Jewish people... Um, as, you know, again, not telling you, Josh, anything that you don't already know, but Jewish people are one of the most liberal demographics in the United States. Why Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I think uh, in the United States, you've got one, um, sort of the anti-immigrant conservative side. And so a lot of Jews coming over... Uh, at you know the turn of the tw- uh, turn of sorry turn of the nineteenth century, right, um, getting into the twentieth century, um, found themselves facing a lot of prejudice from conservative forces in this country, and I think that that greatly drove them towards liberal ideologies. Um, my reading of the Old Testament is that it is a socially conservative and fiscally liberal document. And frankly, I've met almost no one who falls into that category of almost any faith. Um, it's it's a very bizarre position um, to take, and so I think a lot of Jews were uh, found found liberal economics appealing um, because they, they do believe in in setting up sort of these these systems to protect the poor and protect minority groups. And, you know, a lot of the times Jews have depended on uh, sort of a strong government to protect them from groups like the Ku Klux Klan um, and sort of other uh, groups that might have tacit approval from a majority to go out and attack these minority groups. Um, Going further into it, when you are a religious minority, even when your beliefs line up with the majority, you're very wary about religion uh, in influencing uh, political decision-making. You know, just because there's a, you know, a prohibition on... Uh, and in Judaism, again, uh, a lot of Jews look at... Uh, the prohibition on gay sex in the Bible as specifically being about sexual activity. You know, so if you're trying to apply that to a legal contract, um, that's not really fair. You know, what what's the next step for us uh, once you say that marriage is defined by the Bible? Is the next step to say, well, marriage is only between two Christians? You know, so I think a lot of Jews are very wary of um, the hardcore Christian evangelical element that has come into conservative politics uh, recently. Um, prior to that, though, there there was actually a fairly strong um, presence of conservative Jews in this country. Uh, the first treasurer of the Confederacy was actually Jewish. Oh, uh, yeah, Judah P. Benjamin. Yes. Um, and then, you know, one of the, the first Jewish presidential candidate was also a conservative Republican, Barry Goldwater. Right, who famously warned that uh, the sort of right-wing evangelicals uh, would tear the Republican Party apart. Um, so I think all those things come together. The, uh, the fear of allowing a dominant religion to influence policymaking uh, coupled with minority status and the Old Testament's sort of support for uh, liberal economic policies is really what pushes jews into uh liberal ideology
0: yeah i mean that makes that makes a lot of sense you know i mean it, uh and i i've i've heard um i definitely have noticed as a historian that um uh the jewish american community as in the aggregate seems to have gotten much more liberal starting pol- politically starting in you know the early twentieth century compared with the nineteenth century because you you don't see a lot of Jewish abolitionists, but you see statistically a very large overrepresentation of Jewish people in groups like the NAACP, uh, Freedom Rides, etc. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, honestly, uh, there are probably zip codes in um, in New York City that probably produced more white. Uh, activists in the civil rights movement than all of the white evangelical Protestants who participated combined. Um, I I don't don't know if that statistically would be true, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, So so another question that I wanted to ask for Josh is, um, so obviously, and this is true of Christianity, it's true of Islam, it's probably true of of other religions, um, but there, is, there does seem to be, we'll say, a significant opposition among many Jewish people to their children marrying non-Jewish people, as, you know, um, as of course, you know, there is with Christians and Muslims. But my question is, um, because we talk about the Jewish ethnicity and the Jewish religion, um, is the, in your experience, is the opposition to Jews and non-Jews dating primarily a religious or an ethnic one. In other words, if you know if somebody who's black or Scottish you know, or uh, Irish or Greek or Guatemalan or, or any other ethnicity, if somebody from that ethnicity is not raised Jewish but they convert to Judaism, is it, st- is it still a problem for a lot of the Jewish people that oppose intermarrying or is the opposition primarily religious?
1: No, the opposition is almost always uh, religious, um, you know, and I think there's a lot of fears um, of Judaism as a, a dwindling culture, um, you know, the the use of Yiddish in the last 50 years has almost disappeared from the world, um, and so I think a lot of Jews are fearful that intermarriage will lead to the culture disappearing, um, so... Uh, in my experience, if you are dating a non-Jew who is open to conversion, then the the family doesn't really care. Um, you know, uh, my cousin Alex recently married a non-Jewish woman. We all, you know, the whole family turned out for the wedding, and, you know, they stepped on the glass. It was fine. You know, it, it wasn't a big issue. Um, it does vary from person to person. Um, I've met a few very Orthodox Jews who... Um, you know, will say that you know unless you're born Jewish, you can never really be Jewish. But um, you know, I've also met interracial Hasidic Jewish couples, so I feel like if the Hasidic community, uh, you know, can embrace converts, I mean, that really shows you that it is uh, much more about the religion and the culture than it is about ethnicity.
0: Oh yeah, that's and that that's good to hear. And I um I like. I'm strongly in favor of interfaith and interracial marriages, but I think the difference is, at least with interfaith marriages, at least the opposition isn't as arbitrary, in my opinion, because at least the person does have the option of converting. With with with, in, with opposition to interracial marriage, it's like if you're it's like if you're not born the quote unquote correct race, there's nothing you can do. So I think opposition to interracial marriage is significantly more aggravating for me. Um, opposition to interfaith marriage is just something where I'm like, ah, well, I just, you know, I disagree with that, but um, I can understand better where, where someone is coming from on that. But um, I, uh, I, was go- I was going to uh, mention, actually, it's funny, I read a study, this was quite a while ago, but they did some study where they estimated that a heavy majority, I think it was something like 60 to 70% of white women in New York City who were married to black men were Jewish. And I think this was sometime like in the, maybe in the sixties. Um, and, and so I think that that, I think that does kind of support your point that you're making about how it is primarily a, uh, a religious thing and not an ethnic thing when we're talking about the controversy over, uh, over intermarriage. Um, I, I can, I can certainly tell you that um, within fundamentalist and evangelical Christianity, there is uh, a massive opposition to how, um, interfaith marriages to the point that um, that's why we've seen a proliferation of a lot of Christian dating sites because they sort of play on people's desire uh, you know on a lot of conservative and fundamentalist Christians desire not to uh, not to date non-Christians or even not to date liberal Christians so um, the last question I think that I wanted to ask was um, so I I can say that um, there are many of Uh, Israel's policies, um, as with a variety of other countries that I think, um, are, are simply indefensible and, um, are, are rather serious human rights and civil liberties violations. However, um, I've personally been concerned by, um, the fact that I, I worry a little bit that sometimes Israel gets a disproportionate focus for that kind of stuff because it is a Jewish state and that, um, other countries that are as bad or worse on human rights don't get the same calls for boycotts. I've sort of started referring to it as, uh, I'm considering referring to it as Israel derangement syndrome, but I don't want to, I don't want to trivialize legitimate concerns of BDS activists, but I, I sometimes do think that's an appropriate term. So I wanted to ask if you think Israel gets disproportionately targeted for human rights violations sometimes because of the fact that it's a pro- primarily Jewish country.
1: Um, yeah, I, I absolutely do. And, um, certainly I'm not, uh, a pure Zionist. I am, I am of the belief that there needs to be a two state solution. Um, that being said though, a lot of Jewish people have this sort of, uh, you know, kind of, um, insulated mentality, you know, uh, it's, it's like your family, you know, uh, my little brother is is short and he's going gray prematurely, and I'll give him a hard time about it. Uh, if anybody else gives him a hard time about it, I'll hit him in the mouth. You know, <laughs> it's it's kind of like that situation. You know, like I I have a lot of issues, and I've spoken to my friends who are Israeli about you know I mean this is my criticisms of your government, uh, but again you know there's something when you hear uh, non Jews sort of criticize Israel, there is an instinctive defensiveness that comes up like, yeah, well, you know, you don't know. You don't know what it's like to be Jewish and to have, um, one, this idea of should something happen again, like a pogrom, like a Holocaust, like an expulsion, like an inquisition, you know, should something like that happen again, uh, there is a place for you to go and be safe. And not only that, but um, I think what a lot of uh, white Christians don't understand um, living in America is that when you are part of a minority group and you live uh like I do in an area where you know there really aren't a whole lot of people who are the members of your group, you really uh sort of walk around with like a little bag of rocks on your back you know you're the things you do seem to represent you know, your religion, your race, whether you want them to or not, whether it's just something you do, whether it is something that is cultural. Um, and you know, having Israel to go to, I was there for the first time uh, last summer, and it, it really feels like that bag of rocks is lifted off your back. And you're like, no, people can just, I'm just Josh. You know, I'm not representing the Jewish people, I'm not a certain way, you know, you don't have to look at that guy, you know, being neurotic and whiny and complaining in the restaurant and go, oh my God, he's making us all look bad. It just, no, everyone looks around and go, oh, that guy's a jerk and the rest of us are also Jewish and we're not acting like that. It's just that guy's a jerk. He's not representing us as a group. Um, So I think that that is partly why Jewish people get so uh, defensive about Israel um, that being said I do think Israel you know uh, has some policies that are indefensible you know Palestine needs you know full supplies of electricity and they need to be able you know to trade openly for supplies and things um, and generally to govern themselves um, you know in but at the same time you know 1995, they were offered full control of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and 95% of Jerusalem with extra land to compensate for the lands that Jewish settlers had settled on, and Yasser Arafat said, no, not till you give us all of it, and he was given a Nobel Peace Prize for turning down what was probably the greatest compromise proposed in the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. Um... Whereas, you know, you have countries in the Middle East that have never proposed any of these things. You know, Turkey has never really offered the Kurdish people any, you know, any sort of option to, you know, govern themselves. Um, You've got, you know, human rights violations in uh, Saudi Arabia, in Bahrain. Um, You know, you've got... uh, huge human rights violations going on in China. And we, you know, I don't know if the reason there's no calls to divest from China are that, you know, know, necessarily they're not Jewish or that, you know, the practicality of (laughs) divesting from China is near impossible at this point. Um, But I do think um, it turns back to uh, the scapegoat mentality. You know, you look at the, the Pride Parade in Chicago where people oh, yeah. showed up with, that rainbow, with rainbow stars of David and they said, well, the star of David is on, uh, you know, the Israeli flag and we don't agree with Israel's policies towards the Palestinians, so you guys all need to leave the parade. Um, you know, that's that's kind of nuts um, oh, to yeah. me. Oh, yeah. um, one, you know, you're ignoring the fact that these people... Turned up uh, to support your cause, you're telling them what the symbols of their culture mean, uh, which I think is you know wrong in any sense. Um, and two, you know, if you're <laughs> gonna turn away any country that has. Uh, m- Misguided imperialist policies, you know, why are you letting rainbow American flags fly at that point? Oh, yeah, rainbow Australian flags. Rainbow Australian flags, you know, and there's. Um, so I do think there is some level of anti Semitism that goes with uh, the BDS movement, um, but I don't want to say that all criticism of Israel is necessarily.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, um, you know, and my thing with with the you know to kind of get into the uh, the the controversy over that march in Chicago, um, you know, I, uh, my thing was, you know, I I don't think that it's always wrong to tell somebody what a cultural what a symbol in their culture means because um, if I believed that, then I could not support efforts by Northerners to say that the Confederate flag is racist, and of course, I do support those efforts. With Israel, though, you're dealing with the with the uh, Star of David. You're dealing with something rather different because um, you're not talking about a country that was established specifically to oppress Palestinians. You know, um, Israel was established as a homeland for Jewish people, and Unfortunately, and I don't agree with this, but unfortunately, in the process of doing that, there've been some human rights atrocities. And I think you know that you're absolutely right about the point about you know American flags and Australian flags, where even if you disagree with the way that Israel came into existence, focusing only on Israel and giving countries like the United States and Australia a pass for how they were founded does seem to be um, absurd. Um, and yeah, my thing with you know my thing with israel is um you know i i do think it's a it's an important principle of human rights work that people from any walk of life do have a right and and should criticize any country when it screws up in the human rights department however um i share a lot of your concerns with bds because um it seems to me okay if we want to boycott israel and, and put sanctions on israel because of their treatment of Palestinians and and or because of other human rights issues, that's fine. Like, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. I'm, I'm open to that. But I think that we have to apply a consistent metric of human rights. And if we're going to boycott Israel, we have to boycott any other countries that don't stand up to that measurement of human rights. Um, and as, uh, unfortunately... Um, as a matter of practicality, that's probably going to include that's probably going to include most primarily Muslim nations. It's certainly going to include Iran and Saudi Arabia, and, and I'm a little bit uh, baffled by um, I've seen some of the same people who support BDS arguing that we're being too hard on Iran, um, but but with the sanctions that we've got on them, and uh, you know I think that that's that's why. Um, BDS gets labeled just anti-Semitic all the time. You know, I don't think everyone involved in BDS is anti-Semitic. I think a lot of people involved in it are not. But uh, that group's going to have to do a better job of being consistent and policing the anti-Semitic behavior of a lot of its members. And I'm not saying that BDS activists should have to focus on every other country, but I'm saying that they shouldn't oppose efforts to have similar boycotts on other countries, even if those countries are primarily Muslim. Um, And I'm also, quite frankly, it does seem like we have sort of a, uh, I guess you would say, kind of um, selective rules with some on the left in which the policies of Israel are considered objective human rights violations, whereas, for example, executing gay people or forcing women to wear veils in public is considered just a different culture. Um, and I think that that uh, again, if you're not anti-Semitic when you're doing that, and you may not be, but but you can't get too mad when people think you are at, at, at that point. Um, and so, and honestly, as far as the two-state solution, um, actually, well, first I want to let you kind of elaborate a little bit on your feeling on that, and then I'll kind of give my perspective because it's a little bit, it's my perspective on that is a little bit nuanced. But um, I, I, I can you elaborate on. Uh, Uh, your support for a two-state solution and why you feel that way?
1: Um, Sure. So uh, my conception of the two-state solution is essentially um, Palestinian self-government and autonomy over uh, Gaza, the West Bank, and uh, parts of Jerusalem. Um, You know, I I think any people has the right to uh, govern themselves and, you know, to create a nation-state to protect their own interests. Um, At the same time, at this point, the idea that uh, you can just take, you know, six million Jewish people's land away from them and give it to the Palestinians because you feel that they were there first um, is, I think, logistically a nightmare. And I think inverting the power structure isn't going to create some utopia where the Palestinians are, you know, respectful and just let the Jews live in peace, unfortunately. Um, You know, so inverting the power structure I don't think is the solution. I mean, you saw in Rwanda what happened after, uh, you know, the colonizers left and, you know, the Tutsis and the Hutus power structure was inverted. You know, it resulted in a lot of, death in genocide um so i think there needs to be a, a gradual easing um of israel's sanctions and treatment of the palestinians ultimately leading to uh an independent palestinian state
0: yeah my take uh, we definitely have some uh, uh commonalities there um My thing is, so I I do think that an independent Palestine should be a goal. Um, However, I think that um, there need to be conditions for that, and one of the conditions, honestly, would be that um, I think that as a condition of being independent, that Palestine has to agree to ratify policies on women's and LGBT rights that are at least as progressive as what is currently the law in Israel and that they need to sort of adopt a parity clause in which any further advancements in women and LGBT rights in Israel will be ratified by Palestine. Because I think otherwise, if we just were to give Palestine independence now, in addition to the, uh, with no conditions, in, in addition to the other problems that you mentioned, it would essentially screw over a lot of gay and female Palestinians who, I mean, I mean, Israel is not Norway or Iceland when it comes to gay rights, but it's certainly, it's not, like certainly, um, it's nowhere near as bad as it, pretty much any other Middle Eastern nation, and it's even actually better than the United States in some areas when it comes to, when it comes to LGBT rights. And so I think um, that in the meantime, though, uh, while Palestine during, while Palestine is part of, uh, is under Israeli control and even if, and when it gets independence, I think it should continue after that. But I think that Palestinians who are living under Israeli control do need to immediately have full civil legal rights. You know, um, like, I don't think there should be any more legal or social discrimination against Palestinians, um, I'd like to see, you know, just to give kind of one example, I would like to see Israel um, change their marriage laws because currently, uh, unfortunately, um as was the case in the United States for a long time, uh, they their marriage laws seem to be largely dictated by sort of traditional Jewish teaching and, and their, And so there's no separation of church and state, or not as much as there should be in in that area. So I definitely think um, full civil and social rights for Palestinians now, um, Palestinian independence, if Palestinians agree to certain conditions, um, and I think that, um, I will just say this, while I will never stop, support, like I'm never going to stop supporting civil and human rights for Palestinians or Israelis or anyone else, but if pro-Palestinian activists say that the conditions that I have set up are unreasonable and that they are too high a price to pay for Palestinian independence, that does tell you something about, I think, about the motivations and values of those activists. If they think that it's too harsh for Palestine to have to uh, respect basic human rights as a condition for independence. So yeah, that's that's my take on uh, the is, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, I don't think that Linda Sarsour or, or Alan Dershowitz is going to be sending me any uh, Christmas cards after that one.
1: Um, I just want to make a couple points of clarification. So yes, Israel um, defines marriage uh, as uh, a man and a woman, but they do have civil union so that homosexual couples can enjoy uh, the same legal rights and benefits of being married without necessarily the title. Um, I know that's not as inclusive as most of us would like to see, um, but to say that their their marriage laws are purely, um, you know, sort of outdated, I, I don't think reflects the fact that there are civil unions and that civil unions have been in uh, Israel since before gay marriage was legal in the United States. Um, so I wanted to make that, that point of clarification. And that also, you know, the, the difference is um, Israel was founded to be a Jewish homeland. There are several religious minorities, um, you know, Armenian Christians, Christians, uh, the Druze people who are uh, Muslim, Bedouins who are also Muslim, Live within there and all sort of get along and uh, are able to coexist with the Jewish majority there. Um, And so, one one thing that uh, I feel like the BDS movement does is give Palestinian leadership a pass on refusing to compromise. Um, That, you know, they had a chance to essentially have a Palestinian state with 95% of the land that they were asking for. And, you know, they turned that down. Or that, um, you know, for for years, um, you know, the Palestinian leadership would sort of behind closed doors support the PLO's terrorist activities and, uh, you know, kind of to support the killing of, you know, Israeli civilians. And the BDS seems to sort of justify that as, you know, they, they have no other choice. Um, and that, you know, gets into sort of a a chicken and egg kind of debate. Um, but I, I am certainly frustrated with the BDS movement and, um, sort of their idea that the Palestinians don't have to compromise at all in this, or, you know, don't have to take a deal or make incremental steps, um, towards their end goal of a Palestinian state
0: yeah I mean I think um and to kind of you know I mean uh and actually it's, it's interesting with the with the civil union thing um and I don't want to get too much into that because um I, I don't think we I, I think probably our points of agreement on this probably outnumber our points of disagreement significantly but I've never thought that civil unions really amounted to much. You know, I've always thought they were a glorified form of, of separate but equal. But nevertheless, I do think you know what it boils down to is if you want to criticize Israel for their shortcomings on, gray, on gay rights, do it. People should do that. However, um, they also shouldn't ignore the fact that most other Middle Eastern nations and many Western nations— are significantly more conservative than Israel on gay rights. I mean, um, Tel Aviv is seems to be the Middle Eastern equivalent of like a New York City or, or a San Francisco. I mean, so I think that um, uh, while I think I'm much harsher on their civil unions policy than, than Josh would be, um, I certainly don't think it justifies singling out Israel and ignoring what other countries do. And, with the marriage laws, the other thing I was sort of concerned about, and you can actually, you you may, I'm, I I can pretty much guarantee you know more about Israel than I do, but I, I wanted to ask, so with the marriage laws, aren't there pretty strict laws about uh, interfaith marriages or Israeli-Palestinian marriages, or, or how, how does that work?
1: Um, I don't believe there's any legal barring of uh, interfaith or uh, Israeli-Palestinian marriages, just very strong cultural bias against them. Um, that's that's my understanding anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's certainly... I can't think of any, any examples off the top of my head of interfaith marriages in Israel, um, just that uh, culturally there seems to be a strong bias against that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... You know, I think that was something, you know, like I went through a phase when I was uh, when I was younger where I was just very myopically pro-Israel and I just sort of, I was just sort of like, yeah, yeah, I don't agree with all their policies, but I still support them. You know, I would really just try to sort of sweep under the rug any any serious criticism. But I think now, you know, now my thing is I don't care if people criticize Israel. I just want them to be consistent about it. And I feel like I think what Josh and I are kind of agreeing on is that a lot of people aren't consistent. And I think, you know, um, I, I, I think that the apartheid analogy, you know, the South Africa analogy, it's, I don't think it's a problem if people admit that there are differences and are, but also say that there are some points of similarity. I think what the problem is, is um, I, I've seen people say that the treatment of Palestinians in Israel now is as bad or worse than the treatment of black people in South Africa. And I do think that that is not accurate and not really conducive to good problem solving on this issue. I mean, like I said, if people want to draw parallels, that's great. But the the claim that Israel is functioning as the equivalent of South Africa, or is worse than South Africa was during the apartheid era, I think just doesn't hold up because there are a lot of key differences in the legal situation of Palestinians and other Arabs in Israel or under Israeli control versus the kind of rights that Black South Africans had. Um, and you can you can uh, you can jump in on that if, if uh, you want. I'm, I'm sure you do want to jump in on that.
1: Um, yeah, I I can't agree with uh, the comparison between apartheid South Africa and Israel Um, you know while I was in Israel um, one of the things we did you know we were uh, traveling with a group of Israelis and uh, we had a speaker come in to talk about sort of conflict in the Middle East and you know he said you know everyone who has lost a friend or family member to an act of terrorism raise your hand and every single Israeli hand went up in that room um, and you know, he said, I do this same activity when I speak to Palestinians. And you know, I say, you know, who's lost a friend or family to the IDF, and every hand goes up in that room. Um, so I think it there is more direct conflict than there was in apartheid South Africa. There was certainly some instances of terrorism from uh, Black South Africans, but I don't think it was at the level that you know the PLO reached. Um, they also didn't, uh, have, you know, uh, all the countries surrounding them. You know, Israel has been at war with every one of its neighbors at some point. Um, so there, there wasn't the same threat. There weren't people calling for the extinction of South Africa as a whole, um, is a big difference to me. And that, uh, it's it's very easy for us to criticize when we are so removed uh, from the violence of that region. And I think it's it's easier to draw that comparison when you're looking at uh, legality and not the reality of the violence that uh, takes place in Israel and, and that part of the world. Um, and it certainly takes place I think on a scale that did not happen in South Africa. That was more uh, internal uh, oppression. They weren't facing uh, a whole lot of outside threats as well.
0: And I think another issue you run into is that with Israel and Palestine, we have a situation in which you have two groups that both have a, a pretty good claim to the land. In the case of South Africa, I mean the the white Afrikaners who came in there really did not have any kind of similar claim to the land that Israelis have in in Israel. I mean they essentially. I mean with um, with white South Africans it was essentially they traveled over, they saw the land, they wanted it, and so they horribly oppressed the the native inhabitants. Um, and I th- so I think that um, the. While you know, again, I'm fine with comparisons. I think equivalencies don't really hold up, um, and I think that the you know one of the uh, one of the problems that I think you kind of um, are going to run into with this is that there does seem to be. And Josh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I mean, don't like. Um, it, it, like uh, Israeli occupied territory and, and Israel in general. I mean, it's not as rigidly segregated as South Africa was in that time, is it? Or what?
1: What do you think? Well, I think the the segregation is probably where the comparison is most apt, um, to be honest, um, because you know there are security checkpoints you've got to cross, um, but at the same time there are. Arabs living in cities with Jews. There are Jews living in cities with Arabs. Uh, a good friend of mine, you know, lives in a majority Arab uh, town in Israel. And, you know, he says he never has any problems with his neighbors, you know. He lives mostly among Palestinians. Um, so it's, it's not quite as rigid. You know, there, there are Palestinians living outside of Gaza and the West Bank. Um, I think people forget that. Um but it is it is fairly strictly segregated and there are you know security checkpoints you've got to go through. And Israel does regulate trade uh you know between Gaza and the rest of the world. Um and and that's you know that's something I have an issue with. Um uh, I you know, I think Palestinians should be free to to trade as they like. Um, you know, but then you run into the issue again of you know, um, if you don't monitor the trade, then are you risking Palestinians bringing in weapons and engaging in insurrection? Um, so I'm getting off on a tangent here from the original question. Um, but ultimately, I think there there is an apt comparison of the segregation in, in Israel, but like you said, not an equivalency. There are certainly... Um, you know, Palestinians who live outside of, uh, the Palestinian authority.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I've also, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I would, uh, like I would agree with from everything I've read, it does seem like there's segregation and, and we should certainly be appalled by that and we should strongly oppose it. But I, I don't think it's like you said, on the same level as what was going on in South Africa. Um, I do kind of want to, um, and, and also, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there kind of a thing where uh, don't a lot of other Middle Eastern countries treat Palestinians in a similar way to how Israel treats them and people don't generally talk about that, or, or am, I, am I completely mistaken about that? Or
1: um, Not necessarily that they're getting treated the same way, but they're not wanted, you know. Um, you know, Jordan had a chance to take a lot of Palestinian refugees and create a Palestinian state. and They didn't want to do that. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia really doesn't want to take a whole lot of Palestinians in. Um, so, as much as you know, these countries uh, claim to want to help the Palestinians, it's almost more anti-Israel sentiment. I think rooted in eliminating a regional competitor and a strong Western ally. Uh, in their proximity then i think it really is about their genuine desire to help the palestinian people because they certainly could be uh, doing more to actually take in palestinian refugees
0: yeah that's sort of like how the united states sort of around the time of world war ii i mean the united states um they they didn't like nazi germany but they weren't exactly clamoring to take in a lot of jewish refugees either i think there's there's a certain, you know, amount of, you know, it's, it's, it's easier, I think, to criticize the way refugees are treated in another country rather than accept them, accept them yourself. And unfortunately, um, I think there is an element of kind of human nature there. But I wanted to ask one final question um, uh, with, I want to sort of ask you, I wanted to pose a quote to you from Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> and see if you think that it's uh, an accurate quote, and why or why not. So Benjamin Netanyahu, as I recall, said that if the Arabs laid down their guns, there would be no more war. But if the Israelis laid down their guns, there would be no more Israel. Do you think that that's an apt apt
1: assessment, or do you think that he was being myopic there? Uh, I think half of that quote is true. But also, Netanyahu's a dick. Uh, <laughs> Hard to argue with that. He, he is a hardline conservative with no, you know, the same things I've criticized Arafat for, uh, you know, refusing to compromise. Um, you know, God knows Netanyahu can be criticized for the same things. Um, he He's certainly not uh, a leader I like uh, or support, um, you know, and I'm... Not the least bit surprised that he is now uh, embroiled in the corruption scandal. Um, that being said, uh, just so just so my personal biases are out there, <laughs> um, I, I do agree with the half about if Israel laid down their guns, there'd be no more Israel. Um, but I think he is being myopic that uh, you know if if the Palestinians laid down their guns, you know what. What else do they have to bargain with now i think there there comes a point where you know you do have to say you know okay what what can we compromise on what small steps forward can we take um and that that might involve you know uh, some kind of ceasefire but ultimately i think the burden of peace falls on israel because they are the more powerful country they do have the stronger military um, and they have more economic power as well within the world. So uh, I think I think he's really ignoring that power dynamic between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, you know, that's you know, as as much as I, I disapprove of the, the PLO's tactics and uh, other groups like Hamas's tactics against Israel, uh, the burden of peace I think will ultimately always fall.
0: I mean, I I definitely, I think that that was a very apt uh, apt analysis. Um, I think you're actually, that's a great way to summarize it, that the half about Israel is true, but not the half about the Palestinians. And I think that we also have to consider what we mean by peace here, because even if the war ended, um, the lives of most Palestinians would still be pretty unenviable. Um, And so you, you do have to consider, okay, how good would peace be for them in that situation i do think however that he is correct that i do think if israel laid down their arms there would be a very significant likelihood that they would be wiped off the map and you know i've had people make the argument that then the united states would step in and sort of you know uh take out whatever country did that but the problem is you know with with nuclear strikes and everything um, Israel might not be around to see the United States avenge them, if, if that makes sense. Um, you know, so I think that uh, the problem that you run into there is that, as is the case with, you know, sort of the hardcore, the sort of more extreme elements of BDS, you know, the kind of the people like Linda Sarsour, you know, the, uh, the PLO, there's a lot of commonality between. That perspective in which everything is Israel's fault and Palestinians never do anything wrong or anything like that there's a lot of commonality between that and what Netanyahu said you know five years ago if you'd asked me I would have agreed with Netanyahu on that but I you know I think that my perspective has gotten a lot broader since then and I understand the issues better um, and so yeah I think Netanyahu as he often does did a big myopic oversimplification there. So I think that's probably, if you don't have anything else you'd like to say, I think we can possibly wrap up here. Um, what do you think?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a wrap. Well, thank you very much,
0: Josh, for participating. Um, I'm sure that our listeners learned a lot. I think this discussion went really well, and I was glad we actually got to broach uh, some topics that I didn't think we'd get a chance to talk about. So uh, this is, this is great.